God showed the love for me when I went bad sin. God showed the die for me. Boom, five, eight. God showed the love for me when I went bad sin. God showed the die for me. Boom, five, eight. God showed the love for me. Showed the love for me. God showed the love for me. Showed the love for me. God showed the love for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Boom, five. Imagine having access to unlimited divine power to live the most satisfying, God-honoring life possible, right? Imagine having access to that, yet you still feel throughout your life there's moments of, of weakness. There's moments of, I'm not capable of doing this. I feel helpless. I feel cornered. Um, I feel unequipped. I feel a sense of powerlessness. Even though you have access to unlimited divine power that God gives by His Spirit, you know, you still have moments like that. And maybe it's not a lifetime. Right? Maybe it's not a lifetime of weakness, but instead there's moments throughout our lives. Maybe you feel helpless, powerless to resist certain temptations. Uh, maybe you feel powerless to actually do the right thing in the right situation. <clears throat> maybe you feel powerless to actually change the marriage that you have um, and actually mend and repair you know, what's, what's been broken over time within your marriage relationship. Maybe you feel a sense of powerlessness and you feel weak to actually come out of this lifetime of single, singleness that you've been so used to. Uh, maybe it's certain habits, maybe there's certain addictions that you feel weak. Uh, certain moments throughout the day, you know, just temptation creeps in and you feel this, this weight, this crushing weight of weakness and powerlessness to even resist. And so you give in to the addiction and you feel a sense of powerlessness to move forward in life. Maybe some of you feel powerless to actually change the way you respond in certain situations when it comes to your spouse or people in your life that you drive away. Whatever the situation is, um, no matter who you are across the planet, we are wired to need power to live life. Not just power, divine power to exist and to be alive, but to live. And so we're wired, creation is wired in such a way where it hangs on and depends on the very power of God. And power defined in the Greek, as we're going to walk, you know, walk through this and look at what, what power looks like, his name is Jesus. The actual Greek word that we're going to use most often, it actually can refer to might, strength, um, effective power, energy. Think of energy, the effective energy to accomplish something um, or, or the ability or force that drives something um, uh, in its function. Just think of power as being, you know, all those different dimensions. And so when we talk about power this morning, when we say that Jesus is power, um, what we're saying is every one of us is wired to need power outside of our life, outside of ourselves, to live life, period. 
And so wh whether you like it or not, every single person on the planet is trying to tap into some kind of energy source to live their everyday life. And so every person on the planet is looking to something to supply them with a sense of power to live a successful, effective life. Whether it's the power to succeed, the power to endure, the power to resist, the power to not be overcome, the power to achieve something or sharpen your skills or profit or build something. There's effectively within the creation itself is the need for God's power. And so if you want to live the most successful, uh, effective life and you want to build something that lasts and you want a life that matters, there is power outside of you, outside of your own strength and ability that you desperately need outside of this world, outside of the system and this culture that so, so what we've already done is we've eliminated all these different worldly sources that people look to for a sense of power. And so what we're doing is we're eliminating that and pulling that from under us so that we don't look to these things for any kind of power as if they can give us what we need. Nothing can give us what we need to live life effectively except God. And so when we say that Jesus is power, okay, we're going to start in the Old Testament. We're going to start in the Old Testament for sure. But here's kind of the central focus of this whole series. Okay, this whole series is called Jesus Is. And we've already talked about how Jesus is righteousness. Jesus is wisdom. And today we're talking about how he is like the substance and the source of power itself. The very power that you need to function, to stay alive, to actually exist. Yeah, he is that. And then you can go a step further and say the very power to actually live life effectively and function as a God-honoring individual, that power comes from him. He is that power to live life. So if I start to wander away from him, if I start to disconnect myself ever so slightly from Jesus, who is the power of God, well, you should expect not the power to live life. You shouldn't expect the fullest life. The most satisfying, abundant, effective life possible is found in him. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. Christ, the power of God. And so we're going to look at what that looks like for sure. But let's go to the Old Testament. Okay, we're going to go to the Old Testament and we're going to unpack this concept of power. Uh, we won't spend too much time, okay? Because I, there, there are a few scriptures that I'm really excited to get to. And this is kind of building us up towards that, okay? So what I'm doing is I'm laying the foundation so that we have an accurate understanding, not just of what power looks like, but of the kind of power we need to live life. Here's the power you and I desperately need that is not found in this world, it's not found in anything this world can give you, and it's not found in myself. You can't just look inwardly all the time to find stuff. There's some things you don't have. There's some things you have to actually look beyond yourself to find and gain. And so power is one of those things. There's a degree of strength I have to do certain things, but in and of myself, I actually hang on and depend on the very power of God to even do that, to even breathe, to even be alive. And so Exodus chapter nine, verse 16, this is what God says to Pharaoh through Moses. He says, for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, to show you my power. So God allows Pharaoh to actually rise to power, be the jerk that he is. And through that rising to power, God actually plans to humble him and bring him toppling down with his empire. And through that grand display uh, of, of signs and wonders and miracles and God distinguishing between his people and the people of Egypt and bringing Pharaoh toppling down. He's demonstrating his power. He's going to show what real power looks like so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So I, I want you to understand the profound connection between the effective power of God, the might, the ability, the energy, the strength, the efficacy of God to do things, to accomplish, okay? Notice the connection between the power of God and the actual name or substance or character of God, the reputation of God in the earth. When God's power is effectively uh, functioning, when, when, when you see the power of God, I'll say it like this, when the power of God is on display, it is always to draw us to a greater understanding of who he is. It is to point us to him. It is to magnify his glory. It is to magnify his grace. It is to increase his reputation in the earth so that people rightly think about God. And so what God is doing by bringing Pharaoh and his empire down and by liberating the people of Israel is he's putting on a full display of his power in signs and wonders and miracles, splitting the Red Sea, bringing the sea back down on the Egyptians. His name is going to be proclaimed in all the earth, specifically through the people of Israel, right? But also among the other nations, they're going to hear these whispers of the God of Israel. We heard that he dried up the Red Sea. We heard that he dried up the Jordan River. We heard that he took down, you know, the kings of, uh, of the land. And we, we heard about this, okay? Exodus chapter 15, verse 6. Um, and this isn't the first instance of God's power, per se. We see him in creation. The very opening words of Genesis give us a glimpse into the infinite power of God. But I want to start with Exodus just to show you, like, the, 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 the function and the purpose behind the power of God. So, it, so when we see the power of God in our life, it should always point us to Him. It should always point people to Him. It should always be to magnify the name and the reputation of God in the earth so that we have a right uh, understanding of who He is. We have a right view of who He is. Exodus chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And so right hand in Hebrew thinking is associated with, with dominion, power, rule, authority. And that's why Jesus will be, will be seated at the right hand of the Father. That's why when Stephen is, is, is being stoned, looking into heaven, he sees the heavens open and he sees Jesus sitting, standing actually at the right hand of the Father. Um, it's just to note his power, authority, and, and dominion. And so the right hand of God, glorious in power, to actually what? Shatter the enemy. And so, yes, the power of God is saving and redeeming and reconciling. And a lot of the times, the power of God is actually associated with those things, with, with, with God's ability to save people, with God's ability to reconcile people to himself and redeem, right? And make provision for salvation, for sure. But also, that very same power that is redeeming for his children and salvation for his children is actually judgment upon his enemies. It is. It's actually against the enemy and it's for his people. And so the, the hand of God, while protective in nature, while, while safe, you know, while reassuring, while we can be confident in his ability to do things, it, we can also feel safe because of the fact that he is unstoppable. In fact, Psalm chapter 21, and we'll get to how Jesus is the power of God, but just to give you kind of an Old Testament mosaic picture of, of what the power of God looks like, you know, peace throughout the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 21, verse 13, it says, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Your power. So what's in mind here for the psalmist is, yes, God is being exalted, right? But specifically, they are praising the power. 
the might, the strength, the ability, and the energy of God to accomplish whatever he sees fit. Because we serve a God that does whatever he pleases in the heavens and on the earth below. No one can stay his hand. He's sovereign over all things. He's unstoppable. He has all power, like all power is his. It belongs rightly to him. And any degree of power we see in the world is a shared power. It's borrowed from the ultimate source of power being God. And so the psalmist says, we exalt the Lord specifically, not only, but specifically for the strength and the power he has. And that's right. That's good. Because that power, Ephesians will tell us, is at work in our lives. This isn't just a let's stand in awe and like not be impacted by it. No, this power is actually for your good. It's for your benefit. It influences your life. It impacts the generations that you know will come from you. This power is on your side. Because the God who created you and brought you to himself intends to empower you too. And so Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 12, it says, It is he who made the earth by his power. So here we see not the redeeming power of God or the saving power of God or or really the crushing power of God, but the creative power of God to bring things into order, right? To structure and order and organize the world, which you see in Genesis. He allots the boundaries of the sea, right? He marks off the boundaries of, of the waters in the sky and the waters on the earth. He, he puts things in order. He's creating, right? So it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, And by his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. And so the very universe we see as our physical reality, that's the result of God's power. That's the result of God's eternal, infinite mind and his understanding, which puts these things in order and structures and separates and delineates and divides and puts things where they need to be and brings life from these different spheres, which is the sky, the land, and the sea. We see God doing this in Genesis. That's his power on full display. That right there isn't even the greatest display of power. If we're going to be honest and and biblical about it, the greatest display of power is, is the resurrection, the atonement of Christ, which redeems humanity, which makes provision for humanity, which pays for the sins of humanity, which topples the kingdom of darkness, brings it crumbling down so that now those who are in Christ are not influenced or don't aren't enslaved to sin, death, and the kingdom of darkness. Right, so now we come out from under that. I'd say that's a greater demonstration of the power of God to redeem humanity like that, to send his son who lays down his life, who stays there long enough to pay the sin of the world, fulfill the law, and all the prophecies made about him. And then he dies our death, resurrects three days later, conquers death in the power of God, raises to life, ascends to the right hand of the Father, and establishes a new covenant based on his work. That power is incredible. And it's, we have a glimpse of it in the creation. We do. Genesis is a good uh, model, example of God's power. But I wouldn't say it's the greatest demonstration of it. Um, and so what we need to understand is power is not simply something God has outside of himself. Uh, the very concept of strength, might, ability, Um, energy, if you want to use that terminology without getting all new agey, right? That force, that might. God is the substance of that. Like, he is the source of it. There is no power outside of him. Any power that we see, any strength, any might, any energy to do anything, 
That's borrowed from God. That's actually a testimony to the ultimate source of power being God himself. He is living power to do as he pleases, to do as he pleases. And so 1 Chronicles 29 will tell us, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. So, so all these different terms are connected. God's ability to, you know, destroy his enemies, his victory over his enemies, <clears throat> his greatness, his power, all these different things, his majesty. These things right here are all connected. God is great in power. He has glory. He gets victory. He's never lost a battle. He has all majesty. All that is in the heavens, all that is in the earth is yours. Is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and, and you are exalted as head above all. It sounds a lot like the language used of Christ in Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So now we see God as the ultimate source of power, the ultimate source of strength and might. So all power rightly belongs to God. It rightly belongs to him. Like he's the owner. Like when you find something on the road, it has someone's name written on it. You're like, oh, this belongs to, to John Whitworth, right? It rightly belongs to God. Power has his name on it. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 20, verse 6, it says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. And this is what God has to remind the rulers of the earth all the time. And those who have borrowed authority and borrowed power, governors, kings, presidents, all these different authorities, God has to remind them on a consistent basis that all the power and strength they think they have, number one, is minimal compared to God's power. Number two, it's borrowed. Because he sovereignly rules over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might. None is able to withstand you. So this doesn't mean uh, there's potentially a possibility of God losing. He might lose. There's no defeat with God. And any sense of defeat that his people experience on a daily basis with sin, with whatever it is, he knows how to work that out for ultimate victory. Not that our ultimate victory hangs on those things, but he knows how to play those things in and work them into his plan to bring ultimate victory to his people. So even like the small losses we experience, understand this, none, absolutely no one can withstand our God. So we're not serving a God who is one among many or who has a rank of, he is ultimate. He's ultimate. He's preeminent. He's unstoppable and sovereign. No one can withstand him. And when you start to bring this to its logical conclusions, you, you really start to live a life that is full of power. <laughs> like so full of power. That's what I want. I want a life that's full of power. And the problem is we, you take your eyes off the one who is power, you inevitably find yourself living a powerless life because he's the source. He's the whole reason we can live life. Uh, Psalm chapter 62, the psalmist says, look, once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, power belongs to God. Like if you haven't gotten it already, just know this, 
all power in the world, in the universe, at work, in the ways that we don't even know about yet, and science haven't even, hasn't even discovered yet, all that power at work functioning in the universe belongs to someone. It has his name on it. And it comes from him because he is the essence of power. He's unstoppable and sovereign. And no one can withstand him. He does what he pleases. And he's over all things. And good thing he's a loving father that wants to redeem and reconcile and save and make provision for our sins to be forgiven. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And so the ultimate unstoppable power of God is paired with the steadfast, faithful love of God to let you know that all of that power that God has, that he could do whatever he wants, he chooses to love us. And not in a way where it's like, he might change his mind tomorrow, but the love of God is a fantastic display of his power because his love is faithful. His love is steadfast. His love for you is not based on your ability to do things. His love for you does not hang on your performance or obedience. His love for you is based on his own grace. And so if grace is undeserved and, and it's, it's something we've unmerited, it's not something we inherently are entitled to, right? The grace of God makes way for the love of God to actually flow into our life. And, and that love he has for us, the effective love of God for us is, is one of the greatest examples of just how powerful he is. Because power is not just about ability, right? Power is about like control. So like God can have the authority and the ability, but, but the control that comes along with that, where God says, I could wipe them all out. But the love of God comes through paired with the power of God in the person of Jesus to offer salvation to where God goes, I could absolutely decimate everyone and rightly so. And he'd be just in doing that. But instead he makes provision for salvation. He reconciles, he redeems, he lays down his life. He dies our death, he pays our sin debt, he fulfills the law for us since none of us ever could. And he comes down in the flesh to be the perfect human none of us ever could be. So that the, the eternal word emanating from the Father is the prime and perfect example of both the love of God and the power of God. And so God loving you is the power of God on display. That's one of the best things we can take away from this is that more than God accomplishing and, and bringing things into existence and ordering and defeating, God loving you is a powerful action. It's a very powerful, because there's, there's grace and mercy and patience and long-suffering so that all the love we experience as the people of God daily just reminds us, not just of how gracious and merciful he is, but how powerful he is to give us that love, to break through the barriers of sin, death, and the devil, and the kingdom of darkness, to shine his light into our life so we can belong to him. That's power, is that he lovingly makes provision to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness. You will render to a man according to his work. So God is just. He is. But he makes provision for us to actually experience and abide in his love per his power. His power actually makes way for his love. In terms of you and I are now in a loving, abiding relationship with the Father through the Son because the power of God has conquered our enemies. And the power of God has broken through our own sinfulness to offer us what we don't deserve, which is mercy and grace.
but more than God being the source and substance of power, you know, and the one who all power flows from. Um, the Old Testament actually lets us know that God gives power. Psalm 68 verse 35 says, Awesome is God from his sanctuary. Now, he's awesome. We can stand in awe of him all day, but he calls us to something even even alongside that, which is to enjoy and to actually love and be loved by him. So awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to who? It's right there. To his people. Blessed be God. Who does God give power and strength to? Well, his people. Then you and I go, well, how come there are like lots of wicked people that have a degree of authority in the earth? How come they're in rule? How come they have power to do things? I think the difference between the power we have and the power they're functioning in is that theirs is borrowed in the sense that it's temporary. And when they die, all the borrowed power and rule and authority they had on the earth dies with them and it goes right back to God. When we die, we actually enter into like a greater experience of the power that yes, we're borrowing from God. And yes, we're walking in because of God. And yes, he's the source of for sure. But we continue in an eternity enjoying that power at work on full display in new creation. And so I'd say that's one of the differences is that theirs is borrowed and it's always to point them to the one who is better than the power itself being God. Like he's better than any degree of authority we have. He's better than any degree of power and rule and dominion you have in the earth. Any influence, any, all of that pales in comparison to who he is. And so it's meant to point people to God. And there's a degree in which maybe uh, the kingdom of darkness can supply um, a kind of power. I wouldn't say it's similar to the kind of power God gives his people. Like, like Grogu says, it's a cheap imitation. And so there might be all these different factors at play. Um, but the point is that the kind of divine power that you and I get to enjoy, no matter what all power is sourced in him, so even like the enemy and the kingdom of darkness, like borrowed power, which will ultimately go back to God, and we'll point, you know, when it's all said and done, um, all power will be unto him. So God gives power and strength to his people. Isaiah chapter 40 breaks it down even uh, in more detail. He gives power to the faint. You feel faint today? You feel tired? You feel like you didn't get enough rest and coffee ain't doing it for you? Because the rest you need is emotional and mental and spiritual. But you're trying to like patch that up and band-aid that with a physical solution. You feel faint today. We serve a God who gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. The kind of people, without getting new agey, which are positioned to receive the power of God or primed to receive the power of God, the kind of people who, you know, fit that bill are those who admit in and of themselves they, they don't have strength. I am not a self-sufficient source. I'm not self-reliant. I can't look inwardly for what I need because what I need is outside of me. What I need is supplied by God. And those who reach the end of themselves and admit their own weakness and throw their hands up and surrender and admit I am powerless, I am weak, I am dependent, I am in need, 
those who cry out for strength and power that God offers, of course, in the form of salvation, firstly. But secondly, to actually do life, this God gives strength should you cry out. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Right? In your prime, you're going to have moments and seasons of weariness and faint-heartedness. You're going to be exhausted, not just physically, mentally, spiritually. Some of you are depleted. Like You're like my phone. You're at 1%. All the time, man, I will let my phone hang on 1%. I'll throw that thing on airplane mode. I'll close every app to see how long I can squeeze that 1% out until it finally shuts down on me. That's some of you. And you've been so long running on 1%. Maybe you know it and you're just trying to fill that void with everything possible that can't actually empower you. Maybe you guys, you, like you're not aware of it. You're not aware of it. You're actually quite ignorant of the fact that you're running on 1% and you're so close to actually just falling on your face in exhaustion, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally, financially, whatever it is. You, you have a sense of, I am exhausted and I'm running on low power. And this thing's about to shut down. Well, good thing God gives power to those people who need it. He does. The problem is, you and I don't look to God for power. We look to other things. The newest video game can maybe supply me a sense of hope to get me through this season. The newest series on Netflix of my favorite show can maybe give me a sense of joy that can kind of help me ignore all the problems in my life. Christmas is coming around. Holiday season, right? Beautiful holiday season, we can celebrate and ignore all our problems. Oh, whoops, at the end of the holiday season, there your problems are staring you in the face. They didn't go away. Some of you are looking to relationships and just any degree of just love me, want me, desire me, or one night stands just to, just to let off steam. Everyone is looking to something for a sense of get me through life. And God is saying, I'm the only one that can so if you're not looking to God who is real power and you're looking to other things that are cheap imitations and fake versions, I lovingly say this, don't expect real power. Don't expect lasting strength to get you through life. That is found in God. The problem is you're focused on other things and you're distracting yourself from the only one who can get you through life. And you're crying out going, what's happening? Well, what's happening is you're not actually giving God attention and looking to him for help. You're not prioritizing your relationship with him. You're not putting him first practically. You're not seeking first the kingdom of God so that all these things can be added to you. You've prioritized God third, fourth on the list. It's no wonder. You'll do everything you can to actually avoid running to God because, you know, it's scary to admit weakness. It's scary to rely on something else. It's scary to fill in the blank. Micah chapter 3 verse 8. It says, as for me, I'm filled with power. With power. Now, in the book of Acts, and at the end of Luke's gospel, power is going to be linked to the Spirit of the Lord. Like the Spirit of God is the one who provides power practically, experientially to us. So Micah the prophet says, as for me, um, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice, with might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. So it's the power to do something. Whenever God gives power, it's for a specific purpose. Number one, it's to make his name great. It's to expand his kingdom. It's to increase his fame in the earth. It's to give him glory. It's to honor his name. It's to give people 
um, a right understanding of who he is. It's to increase his reputation. So any, anytime God gives power to his people, it's for a purpose. It's to accomplish a certain thing. It's not so you can run on a, on a, on a treadmill for hours. It's not so you can just run in circles, you know, spinning your wheels, going nowhere. It's to actually make progress in your life. So when you pray for power, like expect for something to be accomplished with that. God won't provide power uh, for something that, that goes nowhere. It's for a purpose, for his glory, for his kingdom, for his name, for your benefit. Not for your convenience, not for you just, you know, temporarily just getting through. It's actually for a greater purpose beyond you, but it does benefit you. And specifically, Micah says, look, the spirit of the Lord, which is what he's filled with, the power of God, it's actually with justice and might to declare as a prophet the sin of Israel. So God empowers his prophet to expose the sin of his people in hopes that they'll come back to him. And there's justice and might attached to that. And so that's, that's kind of like an Old Testament kind of general aerial view of what it looks like for the power of God to, to function or to be at work or to empower his people. And some of you are desperately in need of that. And again, you're missing out on real power when you're trying to look to other sources, when you're looking to money, when you're looking to your youthfulness, when you're looking to relationships, when you're looking to your degree of influence on social media, hopefully that will give me the, the power to get through life and to do life and be successful. God is the one who supplies power. And so we have to throw our hands up and admit nothing else can give me the power to get through life. Nothing, nothing else holds my life together. Nothing else keeps me alive and sustains my existence. So why would I lean on another source of power to live life, right? Than the very source that actually sustains my life. Isn't that the same, like the same power that keeps me alive should actually, is actually the one that leads me into abundant life. So it's not just God's like, hey, I'm powerful. I can keep you alive, but go and look for power elsewhere. He's like, I keep you alive, but I also lead you into abundant life if you lean on me. If you lean on me. So now we can look at Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where it talks about how he's the power of God. Not even like, he's powerful. Like he has power. He has authority. The kids are absolutely bonkers in the background. There's three of them. Now, one of them is not mine. So um, I know some people are like, what's wrong with your eye? I got a hair in it. And so I rubbed it long enough that to, it actually irritated it. So don't worry. I hope I don't have a pink eye. You, I know what pink eye is like. In fact, one day I'll share my story <laughs> getting pink eye in Cambodia. That was like a, a level 100 pink eye, just a different monster. First Corinthians chapter one, specifically verse 24, okay? It says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The wisdom and the power of God. Now, now hold on to that. Hold on to that. Because everything we've seen in the Old Testament as regards to the power of God, he's the source. Um, he actually shares that power. We see that power at work to demolish his enemies, to save his people, um, to redeem and reconcile, right? To, to create the world and structure the universe, all that stuff. We've seen the power of God. We know that all power belongs to him. He actually gives power. That's, that's so generous of God. Let's, let's stop and say, what a generous and loving, gracious God. <laughs> that he has all power. And again, he chooses to love. He funnels all that power almost through the filter of love for his people. And he goes, I want to use all the power I have to effectively love because that's who God is. 
And so you never can have power without the love of God. We never put the attributes of God at odds with each other or, or put them on a hierarchy. They're all equally, equally true, equally at work. And so the power of God is paired with the love of God. And so if, if we're going to learn from God and go, you're my father, I want to learn what power looks like. Understand that love is a part of that equation. To have all the power and instead of destroying and, and ruining life, you build people up, you promote life, you bring life. Like that's incredible. That's, I want to be like that. Any degree of influence I have, any degree of power I have, any degree of authority and dominion and whatever God brings, may I use it for ultimately to love and honor God, but to build his people and love them too. First Corinthians chapter one uh, says, for Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay. So this is what's in mind here. When Paul starts talking about the power of God, it's the power to preach, but also the power in the gospel itself, not with words of eloquent wisdom, right? I didn't come to impress people with, with my words, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul's concern is that people wouldn't rely on his words and find a sense of security in his words and his ability to communicate. He doesn't want people leaning on him and his oratory skills. He wants people leaning on God. So to remove that obstacle himself, he's going to use very simple, basic language that almost seems like, you know, uh, caveman-ish. If, if it means they understand the gospel better, I'll use simple terminology and look like a fool and look like I'm not as smart as I really am. In order that the power of the gospel really, really does uh, become what they hold on to. So the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. We talked about this, I think, uh, the last episode where we, it's the difference of interpretation. Two people can hear the same message, interpret it in different ways and go, ah, that's foolish. And then someone else goes, no, that's the power of God. So to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what becomes the power here? Well, the word of the cross. That's what's in mind. The gospel message of salvation, okay? Okay, the gospel message of salvation. The word of the cross is the power of God. Now think about that for one second. The power of God is seen remarkably in the actual message of Christ itself. And it's not like the words carry power because in and of themselves, they're inherently powerful. It's because the message is directing you to the one who is power. So because Christ has powerfully saved and made provision for our redemption, the message about him, because it's centralized around Christ, it has power to lead people to him to find salvation. So the message in and of itself, the words that are used, Regardless of the language, we're not saying uh, grammar and in words themselves filled with the ultimate power of God. It's the message itself, what it's declaring and who it's pointing you to. So Christ has infused this message of salvation, the gospel, with saving power because it directs you to him who is ultimate power. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This is God. Um, overthrowing any wisdom the world thinks it has. Where's the one who's wise? This is God. Oh, divine smack talk. If you would like to chalk it up to that, I like to. This is divine smack talk. 
Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Hey, where's the debater of this age? It's kind of makes me think of when Jesus is in John 8, regardless of whether that's in the original manuscripts, where Jesus is, you know, the adulterous woman is thrown in front of him, and he goes, if you guys, whoever has uh, never sinned, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. And they all start walking away, and um, the woman looks up, and he goes, woman, where did your accusers go? And he goes, I don't accuse you. Go and sin no more. That's kind of the idea here. It's, hey, where are they? Calling you out. Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yeah, he has. Because the wisdom of the world itself doesn't accomplish anything eternal. So you can operate by the wisdom of the world temporarily experiencing like temporary success and temporary accomplishments and temporary achievements. That all amounts to nothing eternally when you stand before God and realize that was all for nothing. I operated by a fading wisdom and now I'm face to face with the one who offered me salvation and I rejected it. In the wisdom that I thought I had, I rejected it. And now I'm looking back going, I'm a fool. So since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Because remember, the gospel is power. The message of Christ carries power that God has filled it with. He's infused the message of his son with the very power to save because it points you to Jesus who is salvation. But some of the world will look on that and go, yeah, that's foolish. And Paul is kind of owning that and go, okay, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we're preaching to save. So if it's saving people's souls, is it really foolish? Or is it actually power that you're denying? You know, Jews demand signs. And Greeks, you know, the intellectuals, the philosophers, they're after wisdom, worldly wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. And remember, keep in mind the message of Christ, the word of the cross, the gospel. We preach a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth hung on a Roman cross to save the world. That's what we're preaching. And that message is a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, like actually receive the invitation from Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what the world interprets as weak and foolish and not worth your time, that being the message of the gospel, is actually the very power of God to save people's souls. It's actually the one appointed method of God to bring salvation. There's one way people can be reconciled back to the Father. There's one way people can have their sins forgiven. There's one way people can get into the kingdom of God. There's one way you can be born again to enter into the family of God. And it's through the message about Christ, through believing in that, which is the power of God. For the foolishness of God, right, the apparent foolishness of God that the world mocks and scoffs, it's wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Remember the wise men that humbled themselves before the, the baby king? Remember the wise men, Christmas story? They come to uh, Jesus. He's not a baby anymore. He's probably like two, three. But some time has passed. He's not a, like a newborn. And they come and they actually bow before the king. And they bring gifts. It's an offering, a sacrifice. It's admitting weakness and hum it's humility. That is God bringing the wisdom of the world to nothing. 
that in all of their wisdom and all their astrology, all of their star seeking and signs, they find Jesus to be the ultimate culmination of any wisdom they thought they had. And they find that it all originates in him. Not the worldly wisdom, but any, but any legitimate wisdom. Because they were actually led to Christ through the star. And it was, you know, hovering over the, um, the manger and they went in and or the house where Jesus was and they found him. So there is such a way where God can use the wisdom of the world to actually reach a point where it stops and it can only take you so far. And then Jesus goes, hey, I can take you farther. And the wisdom of the wise men, you know, actually got them to the feet of Jesus because they were truth seekers. Um, maybe they used Daniel's writings. Maybe they're familiar with the, the wisdom of, of, of that was shared in Babylon when the Jews were in exile. Maybe they're familiar with it. It seems like they were. No, no matter what, these were wise men. And they were seeking for the Messiah. So that, that was more wise than any amount of information and data they've collected about the world and the universe and the stars and the signs. All that paled in comparison to Jesus, who is ultimate wisdom. Now, now Paul says, hey, we preach Christ crucified, the very power of God. What can save a soul? God. How does he save souls and redeem from the kingdom of darkness and pull them out of death? Well, he does that through his son. Practically, how does that work? Well, you tell people about what Christ has made provision for. They either believe that or they don't. And when they believe, God honors that faith with all the benefits of salvation. So the message of the cross, Jesus himself, is the power of God to save. And the very power of God at work through the Spirit of God to bring re new creation. Because we become new creations. And so remember in the Old Testament, we saw the creative power of God. We saw the saving power of God. We saw the ultimate uh, triumphing power of God over his enemies. All the different dimensions of his power are at work in your life. He's overthrown your enemies. Sin, death, the devil, the kingdom of darkness. He's overthrown them. He's conquered them. He's triumphed in your place so that you can experience his victory. He's paid your sin debt. He's died your death. He actually stripped the enemy of any authority and power he had over the people of God. And Jesus does that, resurrects three days later after dying, breaks out of the grave, beats death, kicks it in the face, and offers you the same power. So that now you can be free. So that now the very power that saves and redeems and reconciles and, and makes you a new creation actually leads you into victory. So again, in the Old Testament, when you see these different dimensions of, of God's power, creation, right, saving, um, yeah, triumphing over the enemies of God, you enter into that power right now through faith so that now you have a place with Christ. You're seated with him in victory over the enemies that you once were held captive to. So now you have victory. But also the power of God is at work in the spirit of God to actually make you a new creation so that you become a brand new creature, a new heart, a new identity, a new, a new standing before God, a new status, a new way of thinking, all that, all that. You're a brand new creation. That's the power of God at work. And then the Spirit of God takes up residency in you to make you a part of the living temple. That's the power of God. And you're saved. You're reconciled. So when Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I got to go there. Romans 1, 16. 
He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So again, Paul confirms in Romans that the very power of God is, I think, seen clearest, not even in, his, in Genesis when he creates, not even in when he like topples down empires and kingdoms like Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. Uh, it's not even in that. It's in God's power to save and to love us faithfully and effectively in a way that brings us into his family for eternity. That right there is a magnificent display of the power of God. Not that we have to put these different scenarios at odds where we go, which one's better? But if, if, if we're going to picture the greatest demonstration of power, I would say it's in Jesus humbling himself, having all glory, worship, being God, and, you know, and coming down into our world, taking on flesh, humbling himself, being accused by his creation, right? Allowing himself to be hung on a cross, staying there till it's finished, serving his enemies, loving them the whole time. And then being buried after dying and breaking forth out of the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father after paying our sin debt after dying our death, after destroying our enemies, and then establishing a new covenant in his blood, and then offering that beautiful terms of peace to his enemies. That right there, I would say, is a fantastic display of the power of God. And that's what we need. So if you want to actually walk um, in the power of God, like if you really want to, it's going to look like the way God's power functioned and operated effectively toward you. So the power of God is never without purpose. It's never just, I want power. It's for a specific divine purpose that actually is bigger than you, but it benefits you and it blesses you in the process and it leads you into abundance and it leads you into life for sure. But the purpose is always the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the people of God. New creation is coming and Christ is coming back. We're going to reign with him. It's in that direction and it's going to look like love. So you are effectively walking in the power of God or submitting to the spirit of God when you are loving God and loving people. Any kind of power that you would define outside of that is not power. Because the power of God is always consistent with the truth and the love of God. So God's love seems to be the framework by which his power operates both towards his enemies and those who are his people. God offers salvation to his enemies. Once they you know, die in that final unbelief and rebellion, well, they have judgment. God did lovingly offer. And for the people of God who believe, it's, it's an experience of God's love forevermore. So when we say that Jesus is the power of God, like when we say that he's the substance and the entirety and the source himself, like you and I have tapped into that. You've been connected to that. When Romans 11 tells us that, you know, we were wild olive branches just all over the place and God took us and grafted us into the vine, you are now actually drawing power and strength and nutrients and life and nourishment from Jesus as your source in a spiritual sense. Not that you never, ever depended on him. We always depended on him. Our life hangs on him. But now I'm actually spiritually connected to the father through the son. And that right there is the most power-filled life. Apart from God, who is life, who is love, who is joy, who is hope, who is everything that we need. Apart from him, you can't have a powerful life.
can't. Because you're disconnected from the one who is life, who is love, who is light, and who is power. So how can you effectively have power outside of him? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Now we get into like the more practical uh, aspects of you know what it means that Jesus really is power. Hebrews 1 3, it says he's the radiance of the glory of God. Like the, what the rays are to the sun, Jesus is to the Father. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. You can't get any more clear than that. You can run to the Greek and try and twist it and do some theological like gymnastics. You ain't getting around it. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe. Like just in case you were like, ah, how strong is Jesus? He upholds the universe. The very universe that you and I are a part of by the word of his power. Not even just by the power itself, but by the word of it. And so when you see, G, you see um, God in Genesis speaking things into order, bringing structure and, and organization to the universe, you know, bringing land out of, the, out of the water, separating the waters, separating the, the light from the darkness, you know, you're, seeing, you're seeing the power of God at work. And no matter what, the sun is a part of that. Okay. Um, I could go to Luke chapter 4. Um, how like they're amazed with the authority and power of Jesus. I don't think any of us have to be convinced that Jesus is powerful in signs and wonders and resurrection and casting out demons and healing the sick and raising the dead. That's awesome. Like That's ultimately to point us to a greater spiritual reality, which is that he offers us the spiritual greater versions of those things. Spiritual healing, spiritual freedom, spiritual life, right? So we can talk about the authority and power of Jesus, you know, on full display and, and, and all that he's done for sure. But let me take you to Matthew chapter 24. It says, <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, he's talking about eschatology and end time stuff, but also like more futuristic stuff. Um, this specifically, there's a lot of different, um, perspectives on it no matter what from the perspective of Jesus in this moment as he's saying this it is going to be in the future whether it's completely fulfilled in AD 70 whether it's partially fulfilled in AD 70 um, no matter what this is in the future from when he says it then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power this is what I want to know okay the power that Jesus comes with and he's going to come with great glory. Great glory. And then you have the gathering from the four winds of the earth, which I've heard um, several messages explaining different perspectives. And honestly, I don't know where I stand. <laughs> Matthew 26, Jesus standing on trial. He says, look, they go, look, tell us plainly. Come on. Stop messing around, Jesus. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Just, just kind of just say it, man. Jesus goes, you've said so. Kind of like what he tells Pilate. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Remember how I told you that the right hand in the Old Testament in Hebrew thinking was always associated with rule, authority, dominion, power, sovereignty? Well, Jesus, more than just being at the side of that, he seems to be the embodiment of it. Like him being at the right hand of God, who is the power and the majesty on high, for sure. That doesn't diminish Jesus as being the substance of it. So we're not saying Jesus is merely someone who is powerful. We're sitting at the right hand of God as someone who is powerful. 
that the, the power shared between the Son and the Father is equal. The rule, the authority, the dominion, the shared glory between the Father and the Son is equal. So when we say that He's at the right hand of power, and He comes with power, there's a weightiness to that. There's a majesty. Okay? And here's kind of the implications on us. Here's the implications. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus meets with the boys. And He says, look, all authority. Another translation will say all power. Okay? The word in the Greek here refers to actually the power or the authority to act. So it's one thing to have the authority to do something. It's another thing to have the effective power to accomplish what you legally have authority to do. And so here we see kind of the authority and the power of Jesus kind of meshed into one idea. It's that all authority, power, dominion, rule, sovereignty, any word that it relates to those, all of that in heaven and on earth is given to Christ. And you go, that's great. How does that affect me? Well, he commissions the apostles. Go therefore. Like therefore, because of this, because I have all power and authority as the first perfect resurrected human who makes way for you to get back to the Father, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now you can say this is specifically to the apostles for sure. Uh, oftentimes to distinguish between what was just for the apostles and what was also for us. The way you kind of distinguish between that is that are there other places in scripture that explicitly state the conclusion you're drawing out from that text? And so I can say that Jesus is with us to the end of the age, just like he's with the apostles, because we see that confirmed in the rest of the New Testament and in the rest of Scripture as God being omnipresent. Um, we can see that, um, you know, the authority that Christ commissions uh, or, or backs the apostles' unique status with, that authority, while it's going to play out differently in my life since I'm not a capital A apostle, that authority, that power, that, that, you know, that might of Christ actually backs my life to do what he's called me to. And though it won't be, you know, like a perfect parallel to what the apostles did, it's the same power and authority that backs my life. That's confirmed in the rest of the New Testament. And so uh, Luke chapter 22 will tell us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the power of God. First uh, Peter 3.22 um, is another good verse. I, I, well, you spend a lot of time talking about the power of Jesus, but here's kind of the implications of this on your life. If you feel powerless and exhausted and tired, and you just feel like that you're incapable of doing what God has called you to. You can barely fight the flesh. You can barely get out of bed in the morning. You can barely set a good time to go to bed and actually hold yourself to that standard. For those of you that feel tired, exhausted, spiritually, mentally, all these different things, you need to get your eyes on the one who is perfect power. Uh, talking about baptism, spiritual baptism, I believe, um, which corresponds to this, now, not, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. You're like, sweet, hold on. With angels, with authorities, with powers, having been subjected to him. Meaning this, all possible rule, authority, dominion in both the physical and spiritual world is underneath the feet of Jesus. And you can go to Ephesians to spend a lot of time talking about that. In fact, we will. It's in my notes. I'm supposed to. 
It says, look, Paul's praying that you guys, that we <laughs> would know something. And one of those things Paul prays that, that the church would know is what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So when I say that God shares his power, I mean, number one, he shares his son. And in the son, he's sharing his very life. He's sharing his very life essence with us so that we as believers, when we come into the family of God, we're actually caught up in the very communion and love and harmony and fellowship that the father has with the son and that we see in the Godhead. Okay, That very love that Jesus says in John 14 or 15, he says, the love that the father has had for me, I have for you and the father has for you too. So the effective power toward us includes being brought back into fellowship with God. Number one, otherwise there's no power because you have no connection. So Jesus restores that connection. You ever bought like a bad iPhone cable? You're like, ah, oh, so stupid, man. Like I can't charge my phone to the box and the actual electricity flowing in, in my house. I can't connect that to my phone because the cord is broken. I got to go on Amazon and buy another one that's probably a knockoff and going to make my phone break. That, that power cord serves as a, as a connector piece, which actually takes the power and electricity from your house, whoop, drives it right into your phone. It's a connective piece. Jesus restores our connection with the Father. He acts as the bridge and the mediator. So now we can have the power to live life because we now are brought into this power that is redemption and salvation and, and, and being a new creation. All of that is a part of this beautiful package called our new identity in Christ. But now we have the power to live. So he's going to talk about the very the kind of power he means. Just in case you and I aren't are tempted to be like, well, it's not the same degree of power. I'm not saying you're God. I'm not saying we are divine. I'm saying we've become partakers of the divine nature. However, that works itself out. We are a part of the family of God. Spiritually, we actually bear his name. And this power is toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So we're talking resurrection power like it if you want to make it as, as clear as possible here's what he's saying you and i have the resurrection power of jesus on our side the power that was at work to raise jesus from the dead seat him at the right hand of god in the heavenly places above all rule authority power dominion every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come that power that same degree and kind of power is at work in your life. So you go, dang, how much power did it take? Thank you for the gift. How much power did it take for Jesus to be resurrected from the, how much power does death have over humanity? Well, so much that none of us can avoid it. <laughs> so much that without Jesus, it's inescapable, it's inevitable, okay? So death has some power over humanity outside of Christ. But Jesus breaks that power off. He breaks the chains, breaks open the tomb, comes out and goes, what's up, boys? I told you on the resurrection and the life. And now he offers that same power for us to live in. You and I go, well, we need God's power to be saved. And rightly so. You're right. And then we kind of dip and be like, I, but I don't need that power to live life. And then, oh, hold on. The same grace that saves you, the same power that redeems you, is the same grace and power you need to live each day. 
So I don't disconnect from God now that I have what I need. I'm saved. I have a child of God. I'm going to heaven. I can kind of disconnect from you and just kind of wander. That would, in my opinion and in my theology, if if left unchecked and over time you wander in unbelief and die in that, I would say maybe that faith was never real. But the point here is, okay, that the supremacy of Jesus' power is in mind. That it's actually incomparable. It, there, there's no logical reason to even compare the power of Jesus with any other power or rule or authority. There's no reason to, because he's so infinitely above it all. And then Paul goes, and that's the power I want you to know. Not in a scholarly way where it's like memorize and intellect and, and, and intelligence. Yes, God uses the intellect and the intelligence to bring us to right conclusions about his power, but it's not just a mental ascent. It's actually experiential. Paul wants us to know, to actually uh, seek God to know this power in our minds so we can ex know it in experience and live it out. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Remember how he read about how God is the head? Jesus is head over all things. And he's given to the church, we're his body. And he's the fullness, or, or we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's how the church is communicated here. The church is described as the fullness of Jesus who fills his body. Okay, so hold on to that. In Luke chapter 9, you know, Jesus gives power and authority to his, his apostles to cast out demons, to heal diseases, to proclaim the kingdom, to heal. Okay, Luke chapter 10, he does the same thing, I think with the 72. Um, Luke chapter 24, this is where I want to bring you. Because when we hear power, ah, what's happening? When we hear power... We all have a different, a different kind of scenario comes to mind. You know what I mean? When you hear God's power, you're like, oh, like to, to heal the sick. Or you're like, oh, to proclaim the gospel. Or, you know, when you hear God's power, you, you think, um, oh, the power to like r restore marriages and like heal addictions and free people from the chains they're in and restore families. And yes, all that's a part of it for sure. But those are all, I think, um, micro expressions of the bigger picture of what God has really done with his power. Th those are all like byproducts, you might say. Like those things are happening, yes, for sure. But the power of God, again, is wrapped up in actually having a relationship with him. Luke chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus does promise the apostles and all the people of God, frankly. He says, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. Remember how in the Old Testament, um, he says, who was it? Um, I think it was Micah. Micah chapter 3, verse 8. He says, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. Well, the same power that was temporarily upon Micah to be a prophet is now going to permanently and eternally fill the people of God uh, on the day of Pentecost. So Jesus says, look, I'm going to send the promise of my Father um, upon you, the Spirit, Stay in the city until you are clothed with power. Power is found in relationship. I think that's abundantly clear in scripture. And that's why some of you feel weak. Whether that weakness is actually true to reality, right? Some of us are actually operating in a kind of weakness. 
Like we've actually wandered from God far enough to the place where we're not leaning on him and whatever strength we think we have and whatever strength we're trying to tap into is no strength at all because it's apart from God. Wherever you find yourself today, like if you feel exhausted physically, emotionally, weak, I would say financially, kind of, there's a degree of that, relationally, like spiritually, mentally, all these different facets. If you feel weak and exhausted, potentially, there's like a legitimate weakness there that you got to do something about. Other times, it's a perceived weakness where it's like, no, you're not as weak as you think. Like you actually have this great power at work in your life and you're living in it, but the, but you're succumbing to the feelings you have. You're succumbing to your own perspective and your own assessment of what's going on. So power is found in relationship. Regardless of how you're going to uh, uh, kind of explain what that power is going to look like. Miracles, signs, wonders, growing churches, revival, salvation, restored marriages and families. Regardless of what example comes to mind for you, the power you need to live life is not found in purely intellectual uh, understanding. It's not found in just studying. And I'm not trying to draw a false division between uh, studying scripture and knowing God. Like there's a way that we can experience God, right? Where the truth we've studied becomes more of a reality in our life, right? So I'm not trying to separate them. They, they, They go together. They're both like real legitimate ways of knowing God in experience and in scripture, right? But my experiences are always going to be consistent with the truth of God. That's how I validate that they're from God. The point is real power is experienced in relationship, in proximity to God, in intimacy. So what God does is since, you know, he was all about temple for that season of human history. Now He's created the spiritual temple built on the cornerstone of his son. We're all part of that, right? We're living stones built on one another, mainly Jesus being the foundation and cornerstone, and we're filled with the spirit so that we are the temple of God. So what God does is he fills us with his very power, which is wrapped up in his actual presence. His presence is our power to live life. That If there's anything you can take away from this, not to diminish anything I've said, but if, if you can, if you're like, I have ADD, okay, listen to this. The presence of God is your power to live life, period, period. Now, there's a lot of facets that go into that. There's studying scripture and knowing his heart better and knowing his character and knowing how to live and knowing what he wants, right? There's, there's praying and actually experiencing him and laying my burdens down at his feet. There's fellowship. There's getting around other believers. So I'm not isolated, but it's just me and God and, and it's us against the world. No, actually, God's saved you into a body. Right, So what we desperately need to understand, for those of you that are weak and tired, exhausted, emotionally drained, you've reached the end of yourself, and you, you prayed, you're fasting, you're, you're doing what you can. Understand this, that beyond the pure, sheer discipline of the spiritual faith we have, beyond that, that plays a role in it. But it is about the actual presence of God in my life. And there are ways to actually magnify in my own heart uh, an awareness of his presence. I can actually magnify God. I can choose to focus on him. I can have a greater awareness of him. I can pray. I can fast. I can read the Bible. But let all of those disciplines be in the direction of just knowing God in an intimate relationship. May those disciplines not be driven by any self-gain or self-profit or just trying to get something else and using God as a means to get it. Let God be ultimate. Let him be our treasure. Like if, if Jesus says, I'm going to clothe you with power from on high, 
and he means the spirit of God, which is the actual abiding presence of God, who is overall creation, then maybe we should prioritize the presence of God a bit more. Above the studies, and again, studying is great. There is a way to study scripture where it's almost you're doing it in a way that's disconnected from relationship. And you're all about information and data and analyzing and studying and hermeneutic. And let those things not be an end in and of themselves. Let those things lead me to the feet of Christ to know him better. Let those things draw me to God to know him better. Let him be ultimate and let everything else be a means to know him. That's where power is found. Power is not found in your ability to muster strength and, and, you know, grin and bear it and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's found in the presence of God. And so if you have been disconnected from the abiding presence of God in terms of, I'm not seeking God. I'm not going to church. I'm not in the scriptures. I'm not praying. I'm not fasting. I'm not doing what I know I should be and letting the scriptures guide my life. Then don't expect the power of God and stop blaming him. Because <laughs> apparently the problem is you. Apparently the problem is me. If he makes all this power available and he says, come and get it. And we're like, ah, how? Well, you see, it's 2 Peter. Second <laughs> Peter is how, how, we, how we get it. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things. All things. Joy, peace, hope, fulfillment, love, satisfaction, identity, comfort, power, strength. All things you need to live a life of godliness is found through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through those promises you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do you see how power is found in relationship? He goes, all you need to live a life of godliness, the power to do it, God's power has granted that to you in the form of knowing him. Not just knowing about the scriptures, not just knowing where certain topics are found in the Old and New Testament, not just memorizing scripture so I can quote things and feel better than people, but actually seeing the word of God as a means to know my Father. Seeing fasting as a way to draw close to my Father. Seeing praying as a means to draw near to my Father. Not just a means to get what I want. Not just a means to, to, to use God to get what I really desire. But to know Him. So power is found in the knowledge of God. Period. That's relationship, that's intimacy, that's familiarity and fellowship, familiarity in a good way, not a bad one. So relationship does include knowledge. But I think we can all think of people right now who know a lot about God and they know a lot of the data and they know a lot about other religions and they can quote the scriptures. But when you actually watch them live life and interact and when they talk about the gospel, there doesn't seem to be any familiar, intimate relationship going on between them and God. It doesn't seem to be there. So there is a way to be like a Pharisee in terms of, I know about God, but I don't know Him. I don't know Him. Like personally. Maybe that's why some of you feel weak. Potentially. 
Have you even tapped into the power of God through being saved through faith? 1 Peter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Not against your will, but through your faith. To a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Who? Who's the you? Those who are born again. Those who have faith in, in Jesus and his resurrection. Those who have a living hope in Christ as Messiah. And guess what? You? Yeah, you. You, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you wonder where I get my concept of eternal security? There you go. There's one of the hundreds of scriptures. Right there. Right there in your face. So here are the implications of God's power in my life. Is that the same power that provides salvation, the same power that brings us into salvation and accomplished our salvation, is the same power that preserves us in our salvation. So there's a guarding, protective, preserving nature to the power of God that he, he validates with his own word. And he says, I, I will guard you through your faith. I don't even talk about well, what if I just not believing? Okay, not for today. The point is, the power of God to protect and preserve is the same power that saves and gives us abundant life daily. You know, for 2 Corinthians 10, 4, it says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Because the kind of warfare we're engaged in primarily, people aren't the problem. Actually, it's spiritual. There's a spiritual battle raging. Temptation, my flesh, the world system, ideas that are bombarding me about God that aren't true. Addictions, habits, relational issues. All these are spiritual issues at the core. At the core. When you chalk everything up to a merely physical issue, you inevitably end up applying the wrong solution. <laughs> I'm not saying there's nothing in this world that is purely physical in nature. There are some problems like if you, if you, if you break your arm, you know what I mean? For sure pray. But also maybe you have to go to a doctor and actually like, you know, get checked up and get surgery and maybe <laughs> take some pain meds. Whatever it may be, okay? Don't send me emails about how the medical industry is just pure evil. Just not for today. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Some of you are in those strongholds right now. And you know it. Habits, ways of thinking, depression that keeps coming back insecurities that you've been praying and fasting for God to take away. Um, deep, 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 uh, a sense of isolation that makes you feel unwanted and, and, and really un, unprofitable and like no one needs me and I provide no value. There's a sense of that. Whatever the stronghold is, maybe it's addiction to a certain sin, alcohol, um, overconsumption, getting high every night just to get through the day, you know. I don't know what your strongholds are, but some, you know exactly what they are. Some, for some, some of you, it's anger. For some of you, it's not being able to look away when a beautiful girl walks by. Whatever the stronghold is, we have divine power, not in and of myself, not by myself, not physically, but spiritually. I have divine power through Christ to actually destroy and break open those strongholds by his word. We destroy arguments every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive. So this seems to be a mental battle. 
seems to be a spiritual battle that is mixed with the enemy attacking your thoughts and driving you to thoughts of depression and driving you to thoughts of despair and driving you to thoughts of you'll never get out of this this cycle you've had this addiction since you were 9 you're 48 now you'll never get out of it this these 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 lies and these thoughts and these these wrong beliefs that are constantly bombarding us through culture and media and all these different things your weapon against that is to take those thoughts ideas feelings initial gut reactions captive to Jesus which requires you to know the scriptures so do you have the power yeah is it automatically gonna flow into your life or has God actually given us responsibility to access and wield the power he's made available seems like he's given us responsibility to do something so don't cry out for power God's made available with your name on it when you're not even doing anything to reach out. Where's my power? When's the last time you actually opened the scriptures? When's the last time you actually sat with your spouse and prayed together? When's the last time you actually went to church to remind yourself life ain't about me and I need to be around godly people that love Jesus? When's the last time? When's the last time you actually fasted and said, you know what, my stomach doesn't rule me. I wanna remind myself of how badly I need God daily. This is where we're going to end. When Paul recognizes weakness, okay, and the weakness here is less about a physical condition, okay, just the example he uses is it seems to be a physical condition. Other people have said it's relational, it's an actual like messenger from Satan tormenting him, kind of like what we see in Acts when that's that um that slave girl who has the spirit of divination she's like you know following paul and barnabas around going these are servants of the most high god it, potentially I, I don't know what it is i think it's vague for a reason <laughs> i think we're not supposed to be, know like exactly what the thorn is but paul's talked about his actual physical sufferings up to this point i believe he's talked about his own shipwrecks and his own being stoned i mean when's the last time you were stoned not stoned but actually like People threw rocks at you until you died. You're probably not here if that happened. When's the last time you were in danger in the wilderness or in the city or sleepless nights, hunger and thirsty, naked and cold? Paul's talking about all these different sufferings he's experienced. And that is part of this theology of weakness. Okay, that, that's a part of this concept of weakness. And Paul's talked about how, look, I had some great revelations. I've done some great things. So, to keep me from becoming conceited. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, like a thorn was given to me in my flesh. Okay, and whether that's the actual like flesh body or the flesh being like the nature that is actually opposed to the things of God, a messenger of Satan was sent to harass him. Okay, that could be in the form of sickness, that can be in the form of spiritual torment, that can be in the form of condemnation and reminding Paul of his past and how he used to like kill Christians, that can be in the form of addiction, that can be in the form of whatever it is. Okay, we don't know but to keep me from becoming conceited. That thorn was given. He's gonna chalk this up to a weakness. He's gonna call it a weakness. This weakness, this thorn, you, I think the most helpful way to define a weakness so that we're not confused are those things that are simply out of my control. Situations that happen to me illness that comes my way, physical suffering I endure, a persecution that comes my way, 
situations I truly can do nothing about but lay them at the feet of Jesus. These times where we're cornered and we reach the end of ourselves and realize I am insufficient and I have a limit. Those are the things that come to mind. Three times Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord. So he's not just praying half-heartedly being like, yeah, if you want to take it away, God, do it. Three times I pleaded. He's begging God to take it away that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. It's enough for you. Not just the grace I've already supplied, right? but the grace that's currently in operation in the life of Paul right now. For my power is made perfect or accomplished right, in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses whether they're physical things I can't control about my body or sickness or illness or things that happen to me or persecution that comes my way or situations I find myself in that I truly can do nothing about. And I've done everything I possibly can and I've prayed and I've left it at the feet of Jesus and it still won't change. And I've prayed for my spouse and I've prayed for, for the next car we get to not break down so that we're not in debt. And I've prayed for God to provide a house and I've all these different things that leave us in a place of desperation. Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, but it's for a reason. It's so that the power of Christ may rest, abide, stay on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. In the year 2023, we're going to have an entire series on contentment. So I don't want to break this down too deep and show my hand too early. But I will say this. The power of God is displayed through your weakness. The power of God is experienced not in God taking away your weakness, but in God gracing you to keep functioning with that weakness and through it in a way that honors Him. So the power of God can save, can redeem, can free, can strip those things off us that are killing us. But there's other times where God intends to show how powerful He is by you being content when situations still aren't changing by your level of love for God and glorifying Him in the midst of things that simply aren't getting better and they're not getting taken away. Is He enough? You saying that He's enough when life is hard and difficult and weakness is coming, you saying that He's enough puts His power on full display to the world. It's literally like through your weakness that you're tempted to pray away God is actually using that to reveal how powerful and capable and loving He is to you, but also to the world around you. So that now weakness is not just this self-centered issue that's all about my temporary happiness and my convenience and my safety and, and my personal, you know, it's not about me. It's about how is this being used to benefit the world and expand the kingdom? And Paul says, you know what? 
the power of God is perfected, brought to completion in weakness. In terms of, yeah, when I am weak, that weakness that I'm saying, change, take away, stop it, God. He's going, actually, that right there is a platform for my power. So if I take it away, you become less dependent on me. You rely less on my power. You understand my power less. The world will see less of my power. All that, okay? So it's very, very important that as we talk about, or as we, guess, I guess, end uh, this conversation on the power of God, we desperately need to make sure, okay? We desperately need to make sure that your weakness is actually a part of God's power in your life. God's power doesn't eliminate all the weaknesses and uncontrollable situations in us, in our life. He doesn't eliminate that. God's power actually allows us to endure through that while other people aren't. And actually allows us to have the strength to pick people up who are going through the same thing even though we're still going through it too. There's a, there's a plethora of ways. Plethora of ways. Okay. That God... um displays his power, but namely it's through his son. Jesus is the power of God. So he is the power I need to live life. Staying near to him, his presence is everything. Um, and there's some of you that don't yet have access to the power of God. You're not living in his power and you know it. If you don't know that Jesus actually has come from heaven, has paid for our sin, um, has died our death. He has fulfilled the law. He has lived as the perfect human in our place that none of us ever could be. And you go, why, why do I care? Because every single one of us has sinned. No one is perfect. Everyone has failed, either by their own standards, but especially by the standards of God. We all fall short of perfection. So if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven and live forever in bliss and and joy with God as your father, that requires you to be perfect. Here's the problem. You can't become perfect once you've messed up. I can't do enough good to change the fact I've done wrong. So what Jesus does is since we are dead in sin, since our sin separates us from God who is life, and since we can do nothing about that to save ourselves and climb the ladder to get into heaven, Jesus comes down and he lives the perfect life for us. He meets his own perfect standard. He literally dies on the cross in our place, subjects himself to his own creation's you know, wickedness, and he allows them to condemn him to the cross. And Jesus suffers in our place. He pays our sin debt. Like in the body of Christ, evil is actually penalized. And he fully pays for the sin debt we've accrued. And the just penalty for sin is death. Because when you violate the law, there's crime. There's punishment for that crime. The punishment for sin is that you're separated from God because you are not compatible with his light when you're of the darkness. Light and darkness can't coexist. So our sin separates us. Jesus took that upon himself. And he experienced that punishment in our place on the cross fully for all of humanity. And then he died. A Jewish carpenter from Nazareth died. He was buried, and three days later, he rose again in the power of God, conquered death, rose to life, resurrected, appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses, 
The New Testament is the account of their eyewitness testimony and all that they've seen and all that Christ has done through his church, by his spirit, through the apostles. Now you and I are faced with a choice. There's no other way for your sin to be paid for. There's no one else who has paid for your sin. No one else has died your death. No one else has lived perfect. No one else has been validated by God as the only way into the kingdom of heaven. No one else. So you got one way, and it's Jesus. One way. You have one hope. When we all die, we're going to stand before the living God. And you either are acceptable in his sight and he lets you in because you meet his standard or you don't. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. It doesn't matter how morally good and superior you are to chuck down the street who murdered three people. It's not about being better than someone else. It's not about being morally good enough. It's being perfect. No one's perfect. Jesus is. And he extends to you his perfection. He says, I, I will make you righteous. I've paid your debt so you can have my life. I've died your death so you can enter into life and have a relationship with the Father. That's what Jesus is offering you guys today. The terms of peace. Because the King is coming. I promise you that. And His enemies won't stand. His enemies will be destroyed and this earth will be purged of all evil. And if you are of the evil one, you're purged with it. You're gone too. So you have a choice. You can believe in the Son today and trust in Him alone. What you're saying is, I believe that Jesus has come down from heaven, has paid my sin debt, has died my death, has risen to life three days later, and he's coming back to reconcile and save everything and make it all new. He is. And part of that belief is that you turn from sin. That's, that's the assumption there is that you admit you have sin and you don't want it anymore. You want to turn to God to lead your life now. I know you've, you've been the king of your life for so long. I know you've let the culture influence how you live and, and you've, you've let however you want to live, you live like that. Every desire, every feeling, every idea, you just go with it. Jesus is bringing an end to that because that way of life has destroyed you. It's ruined you. It's left you isolated, having no friends. Frankly, you know it and you need to admit it. So what God is offering to, do, to you today is not that you would add him to your life as just another thing, but that you would give him your very life and say, here I am. I believe. And so I, I do want to pray. I want to, do want to invite anyone who wants to, to pray with me that you would give your life to Christ. If you have a not already this is your chance. You're not promised tomorrow. And this is not to fear monger and cripple people and to, you know, guilt trip them into believing. But the reality is we're all going to stand before God. So you don't, you don't know how long you have to make this decision. So I'm going to pray. Um, and I encourage you to pray with me if you've never given your life to Christ and believed in the gospel and turned from your sins, now's your chance. God, I do pray for these people, whoever it is that you're stirring and convicting, whoever it is that has not given their life to you and believed in the gospel, they've not turned from sin. They've added you to a life of sin. God, I pray that you would turn their hearts to you, help them to understand Help them to actually um, know what it is that they're doing. I pray for them. Pray that they would turn from their sins to you. I pray that you would make new creations out of them today. Give them new hearts. Lead them into a relationship with you where they're satisfied. I pray for their eternal life, Father. Give them what they need. Access to power, which comes 
through the Son. Power to conquer sin and, and death and the enemy. The power to enter into life. God, I pray that you would lead the right people in Jesus' name. Amen. Not to say that anyone uh, is saved by simply saying, <laughs> I'm saved. But if you did give your life to Jesus, and this is the first time you've ever believed, or this is the first time you've turned from sin to the living God, let us know in the chat whether you're on TikTok or on YouTube. And if uh, the moderators can, please uh, maybe like somehow jot down anyone it is who has given their life to Christ um, so that we can provide you guys resources and get you plugged into our community online, our church um, online. We have an online church. And so... Um, if you did pray that prayer for the first time and like, not that you're saved by a prayer, okay? But that prayer is an expression of the faith you have. So raise your hand or, or message me personally if you feel more comfortable doing that on Instagram or email. But if you want to make it public and let people know, put your hand up in the chat and let us know that today you gave your life to Jesus and we'd love to walk with you and provide you resources and community as best as we're able to, all right? But uh, if you guys didn't know, this is our online ministry. You can, this is my full-time job to support my wife and two kids. I have a real wife with real children. Um, and this is our, well, the way that God has provided for us. And uh, what we're doing here, if you didn't know, you can go to abovereproachministry.com. Um, what we're doing is we're moving people towards Jesus. Not that we are able to do anything apart from God. He empowers us. Um... And so we trust God to make our efforts fruitful. But we have a ton of free stuff. You can go to our website, check out our free Bible study skills classes if you want to learn how to read the Bible better. Uh, we have Bible study worksheets, which are kind of like cheat sheets for different books of the Bible. Um, we have free devotional studies you can read throughout the week and also um, refresh yourself and um, get closer to God through that. We have Bible study workshops. Um, we have the online church. We have all these sermons organized topically on YouTube. Um, and then you can get a copy of my book here if you haven't already. Uh, it's the essential keys to living the most abundant, fruitful life this side of heaven. Um, and then you can join our online church right here if you haven't already. It's on Discord. Every day we're in there praying, gathering. Uh, Wednesdays we fast. Thursday nights we have Bible study. Um, all the days throughout the week pretty much we're praying and talking and fellowshipping and growing and asking questions, you know. And then if you want to give to this ministry, all these resources are completely free. All the Bible study classes, the devotionals, the workshops, the worksheets, the community, the sermons, obviously completely free, but we um, are supported by generous supporters like you. And so if you want to help us resource the church and keep creating all this free content to everyone around the planet, um, you can give right here on our donate page to, uh, out of your debit or credit card, you can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, or become a monthly supporter through Patreon. Um, and then you can also get some church merch. All the proceeds feed right back into all this content being created um, and resourcing the church and leading people to Jesus and all this different stuff. So you can get, you know, sweatshirts, shirts, um, mugs, different digital products that are available. And um, yeah, if it wasn't clear, uh, let me clarify. You are saved through faith in Jesus alone, period by His grace. You're not saved through your efforts or your works, you're saved through Jesus. And so, um, turn from sin, repent and believe in the gospel. That's my encouragement to you, if you have not already. 
and go walk in the power of God today. All right? Love you guys. Keep moving towards Jesus. And I will see you guys, um, not this Friday, but Monday. All right? Bye.